Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Do you remember when we went to Paris? It feels like a million years ago. I remember. I think about it every day. It was in 2019. Uh, I went to the Musée Marmottin Monet. And as that name suggests, they have a lot of Monet. That's why we were there. My spouse is a big Monet fan, and I just generally like the Impressionists. So we decided to go to this museum that has the largest collection of Monet all in one place, uh, which is thanks to Claude Monet's son, Michel, who, who donated a lot of his father's artwork to the museum. While we were there, though, I really fell in love with the work of Bert Morisot. So I had seen a couple of Morisot's paintings reproduced in books, but as is so often the case, that really just didn't compare to being there looking at it in person, also with an audio tour to kind of draw my attention to things that I might not have noticed otherwise. Bert Morisot primarily worked in oils and watercolors and pastels, and her favorite subjects were really the other women in her life, often captured in these very, like, tenderly private domestic moments. The paintings that were on display while we were there included several that she had done of her daughter from her childhood into her adolescence. And I just became really entranced with this idea that a woman whose focus was on painting things that are traditionally considered feminine Like, she was right at the heart of the Impressionist movement. Um, It's been almost two years since I pulled anything off of my stuff-from-the-Paris-trip idealist on the show. So I decided it was time. Time to go back to that list again. Yay! All things Paris. All good by me. So, Berthe-Marie Pauline Morisseau was born in Bourges, France, on January 15, 1841. In a lot of sources, you'll see, say that she was descended from Rococo painter Jean-Honoré Fragonard, who died about 35 years before she was born. There are articles all over the web that say he was her grandfather. That is definitely not the truth. They might have been more distantly related, though. Yeah, it's a little unclear. It was maybe even just like a family lore of, ah, he's we were related to him. It's not clearly documented anywhere. <laughs> he could have also been found family and they just called him her grand. Like, there are so many options. Yeah, yeah. And there are also, I, there are some parallels between Rococo artwork and uh, Morizot's artwork. So people may have been seeing some commonalities there. Don't really know. Her mother, though, was Marie-Josephine Cornelie Thomas, who was known as Cornelie. She was from a pretty affluent family. And then Bert's father, Edmé Tiburce Morisseau, who was known as Tiburce, picked up an independent income of about 8,000 francs a year through his marriage to her. This was a pretty good amount of money. For comparison, the average worker made about three francs a day. So this family was living very comfortably, Most sources describe them as being very firmly in the upper middle class or the grand bourgeoisie. Tiburce did still work, though. He had studied art and architecture, and he had tried, and failed, to start an architecture journal in the years before his marriage. He became a civil servant, and his exact job and how high up that job was varied from one administration to another. 
When the children were young, the family moved from place to place as he was appointed to different posts. But he was also something of a royalist, which led to his resignation or to being dismissed at several points along the curve as this job progressed. This included when King Louis-Philippe was forced off the throne in 1848, when Napoleon III came to power in 1851, and when Napoleon III nationalized property that had previously belonged to the royal house of Orléans. After all that, in about 1852, Tiburce moved the family to Passy. That's now part of Paris, but at the time it was more like a suburb. And aside from travel and vacations, things like that, the Morizos lived in the Passy neighborhood for most of the rest of their lives. Berts had two older sisters, Marie-Elizabeth Eve, known as Eve, and Marie-Edma Caroline, known as Edma. Their younger brother, Tiburce, was born when Bert was somewhere between the ages of four and seven. His birth year, not entirely clear. And we don't really have much information about the siblings' young lives. And what we do have mostly comes from Tiburce, who was interviewed by Bert's first biographers, but that didn't happen until he was in his 60s. Yeah, who even knows how accurate a person's recollection of their sisters' childhoods uh, were that far out. The Morizos sisters had a pretty conventional upbringing, though. They were raised by their mother and grandmother and governesses, including one English governess who left Bert with a love of Shakespeare. They also took music lessons, and in 1857, Cornelie decided to have them instructed in art. Their father had said that he wished his daughters knew how to draw, so Cornelie thought she would get lessons for them and have each of them make a drawing for him as a surprise gift. It's a lovely sentiment. I think it's very sweet. Uh, Their first teacher was Geoffrey Alphonse Chocairn, and their instruction with him doesn't seem to have actually gone very well. He started out teaching them cross-hatching three times a week in four-hour sessions. If you've ever done any cross-hatching, you can see where this would not be the most delightful way to get a child interested in art. Sounds tedious to me. (laughs) It is very tedious. Eve found this so tedious that she gave up drawing to do needlework. But Bert and Edma became artistic partners for more than a decade, supporting one another and critiquing each other's work. When they started their art lessons, Bert and Edma were in their late teens, and it just wasn't considered appropriate for them to be out alone. But if the two of them were together, that was less of an issue, as long as they were somewhere that it was appropriate for young women to be at all. They were really in agreement about where and how much they wanted to paint, and so the fact that they were both pursuing this made it much easier for the two of them to just paint whenever they wanted, as much as they wanted. Their mother did accompany them sometimes, usually bringing along her sewing with her when she did, but, like, they had more options. They didn't have to, like, goad their mom (laughs) into coming with them so they could go somewhere and paint. After becoming dissatisfied with Chocairn's art classes and all of that cross-hatching, which is an important skill, but that's a lot, uh, Bert and Edma found a new teacher. That was Joseph Benoit Guilchard. And he seems to have recognized their potential and that they had a dedication beyond what was expected for middle-class teenagers taking art lessons. Like, taking classes in painting or drawing was not unusual, but their level of focus on it really was. According to their younger brother, at one point, Guilchard said to their mother, are you sure that you will never rue the day when art, having entered a once respectable, peaceful home, becomes the sole master of your two children's destinies? But 
Cornelie wasn't concerned about her daughter's painting becoming a problem. At least she wasn't yet. One of the standard ways to study art at this point was to copy the work of the old masters. And Guichard registered the Morisot sisters at the Louvre so they could work there. Bert particularly focused on copying the work of Titian and Peter Paul Rubens. Eventually, Bert and Edma told their mother they wanted to study plein air painting, that is, painting outdoors, rather than sketching an outdoor scene to paint in a studio. By 1862, they were studying with landscape painter Jean-Baptiste Camille Corot, or when he was away or he was too busy with his student François Oudinot. Although this continued until about 1868, at some point, they had a falling out with Oudinot. The details are unknown, but Bert and Edma's letters to one another make it clear that in the end, they both hated him and they found him ridiculous. In 1864, Bert and Edma both had pieces accepted to the government-sponsored art exhibition known as the Salon. And that was a critically important venue for artists to establish their reputations and to find buyers for their work. The sisters were listed as students of Guichard and Oudinot, and this was the first of several appearances at the Salon for each of them. Edma had pieces accepted every year until 1868, and Bert exhibited work there six times between 1865 and 1873. The jury at the Salon tended to be pretty conservative, though, and as her work got more experimental, less and less of it was accepted until none of her submitted pieces were accepted in 1874. The first time their work appeared at the Salon, Bert was 23 and Edma was 25. And even though the standard life path for women of their station was to marry and have children, their parents were still quite supportive of their art. In 1865, the Morisseaux had a standalone studio built at their Passy home, and they hosted dinners every Tuesday night, inviting painters, writers, musicians, basically making their home into a gathering place for creatives and intellectuals. But then in 1867, Eve, the oldest of the Morizot daughters, got married. And in one way, this opened up some new opportunities for Bert and Edma. While they could get away with painting together without another chaperone, they couldn't really travel on their own. So having a married older sister gave them a new potential chaperone and traveling companion— at the same time, though, Eve's marriage seems to have prompted Cornelie to start worrying about when her younger daughters would find husbands of their own and whether their art was getting in the way of that. In 1868, the Morisots met a family that would have a big effect on their lives and vice versa. We're going to talk more about that after a sponsor break. In 1868, the Morisots met the Manets after Bert Morisot met Edouard Manet while she was copying at the Louvre. But each of their reputations had preceded them. Manet was already known as a controversial and sometimes really scandalous artist. He had shown his work at the Salon de Refusés in 1863 after the official Salon had rejected it. And Cornelie Morisot also had a friend who had spent an evening at the Manet residence and then afterward had told her all about how her daughter's artwork had been a topic of conversation that night. Edouard Manet was married when he and Bert first met. And there's been some speculation that they may have had an affair, or at least that she was in love with him. 
She clearly found him attractive, and he painted at least 14 pictures of her during his lifetime. But there really isn't any substantiation for an affair. And then there is this, which Manet wrote to Henri Fantin-Latour in 1868, quote, The young Morisot girls are charming. It's annoying that they are not men. However, as women, they could serve the cause of painting by each marrying a member of the French Academy and sowing discord in the camp of those daughters. I find that both hilarious and kind of insulting. a little yucky, but also kind of funny. Maybe not a thing you would uh, say about somebody you were having an affair with, but who knows. Regardless of that detail, the Manets and the Morisos became friends. They entertained each other regularly, and they also made a lot of connections to other prominent people in Paris, like Charles Baudelaire and Émile Zola, Sometimes Manet is described as influencing Berthe Morisot, but really, each of them was influencing the other one, including her encouraging him to try painting en plein air. Each of them was really playing off of the other and developing their own artistic styles, which for both of them would be a big part of the foundation of the Impressionist movement. In 1869, Edmond Morisot married a Navy lieutenant named Adolphe Pantillon, who was a longtime friend of Edouard Manet's. And this had at least as much of an impact on Bert's life as the connection to Manet had the year before. Bert and Edmond were each other's best friends and artistic partners, and they had really never been separated before. They both missed one another terribly once this marriage took place, exchanging lots of sorrowful letters. Although Edma still painted from time to time, her career as an artist really ended when she got married. She wrote to her sister about being dissatisfied with what she tried to paint, and also about just time kind of getting away from her, especially after she became a mother. Edma suggested that marriage might be challenging for Bert as well. At one point, Baird wrote to her sister, quote, Men are inclined to believe that they fill all of one's life, but as for me, I think that no matter how much affection one might feel for one's husband, it is not easy to break off a life of work. Romance is all very well as long as there is something else besides it to fill one's days. Edma encouraged her to delay getting married, telling her to, quote, Use all your skill and all your charm to find something more satisfactory for you. About three months after Edma got married, Bert went to visit her and stayed for part of the summer. And this is when she started painting pictures of her sister. Basically, every time the sisters visited one another, Bert painted. It is possible that Bert painted her sister before this point, but she later destroyed much of her work from before 1869. So if there are pictures that she made of her sister before this point, they did not survive. Their mother, though, was becoming less supportive of Bert's artistic career. She was starting to really fear that her youngest daughter was just never going to get married. Yeah, keeping in mind (laughs) that at that point, that was really the only path to know you had, like, financial stability in life for a woman. Yeah. So it, it, you know, a little different than the way people push people into marriage today, but still probably annoying if you're Bert. Right. (laughs) Um... Bert did not submit any work to the Salon in 1869. She had submitted every year since 1864. Although she did not document her reasons anywhere, this exceptional year was probably a combination of her sister's marriage, 
her spending some of her time modeling for Edouard Manet and Alfred Stevens, and some kind of issue with one of her eyes. She described it swelling and that she had to wear a bandage. Berth did submit to the Salon again in 1870, and two of her paintings were accepted that year. Both of them featured her sister, Edma. One of them was the artist's sister at a window, and the other was Portrait of Two Women, also called the mother and sister of the artist. Edma was pregnant with her first child in both of these paintings, and that's something that's disguised a bit uh, through... She's wearing these flowing white dresses. If you know she's pregnant looking at it, you can kind of see that she looks a little pregnant, but uh, it's not as obvious as it might have been in another... Uh, outfit or posture. Bert had asked Edouard Manet for some advice on the painting of her sister and mother. And in response, he had significantly retouched and repainted part of that painting before he submitted it to the Salon. Morisot had developed this very light, almost sketchy style that intentionally left parts of her paintings looking almost unfinished. And in Manet's mind, he finished it for her, in the process causing Morisot's mother to look different from the rest of the painting. Morisot was just sick about this, writing to her sister that her only hope for it was that it would be rejected. And it was not. Yeah, it's, she was deeply upset. You can see uh, pictures of this painting online and... Her mother is noticeably different, even for someone who doesn't have a lot of formal training or any really formal training in art. <laughs> like, noticeable differences in how her mother is painted versus her sister and the rest of the picture. The Franco-Prussian War started in 1870, and Paris was under siege from September 19th of 1870 to January of 1871, the Morisots were affluent enough to be sheltered from some of the worst of this. But this was still a time of fear, danger, and deprivation. Members of the militia were quartered at the Morisot home in Passy. Bert's brother served in the military and was captured, eventually escaping in the hold of a ship. Eve described Bert as being nervous and sad, fainting and developing consumption during the war. Bert referred to it as a, quote, leaden nightmare. When she could, she painted, mostly in watercolors, just so that she could have something to focus on. By January of 1871, all the Morisots had to eat were crackers, and they ate only crackers for days. This deprivation seems to have negatively affected Bert's health. She had recurring illnesses, and it is not clear whether her digestion was affected or whether her eating became disordered. After the war was over, Bert and her parents retreated to Saint-Germain-en-Laye, and they narrowly avoided the violence and destruction that followed when Adolphe Thiers, who was the head of the National Assembly, dispatched troops to deal with the uprising known as the Paris Commune. Briefly, this was an insurrection against the National Assembly and the decisions that it made following the Franco-Prussian War. There's a bit more about this whole period in our recent episodes on the Dreyfus Affair, Bert's studio was destroyed during this wave of violence, along with the work that was in it. Adolphe Thiers was a family friend of the Morisots, and Bert's parents supported his decisions in dealing with the Paris Commune. That was something that led to the deaths of at least 20,000 Parisians. Bert's specific opinions about this aren't really recorded anywhere, aside from mentioning increasing disagreements with her parents. But many of the artists she knew, including Manet, were relatively moderate. 
not supporting the communards, but also denouncing the government's response. Yeah, uh, the the communards generally tended to be working-class people. Some were also artists, but not generally people who were more affluent. And so the their position in more of the upper-middle class meant that a lot of the people that Bert was more directly connected with uh, were opposed to what the, the government was doing, but also weren't really supporting the uprising itself that much. After all of this was over, Bert and her sister Eve took a trip to Spain. Bert seems to have wanted a break from her parents and maybe also from some of the other more conservative people who were living in their neighborhood. She also started talking about really trying to make a living as a painter. And this was becoming a little more possible thanks to the existence of private dealers who were starting to sell more artwork outside of official venues like the Salon. Morisot's first private sales were through Paul de Grand Ruel in 1872. He had developed a reputation for taking on more experimental avant-garde work and successfully finding buyers for it. The term impressionist hadn't yet been coined when Durand Ruel started buying the work of artists like Bert Morisot, Claude Monet, Edgar Degas, and Camille Pissarro. But today he's known for recognizing, promoting, and really financing the impressionist movement. 1874 was a tumultuous year in Morisot's life. Her father died on January 24th of a progressive heart condition. In addition to her grief, his passing raised financial issues for her and for the rest of the family. Bert inherited about 40,000 francs. That was a substantial amount of money, but it also was not enough to just live off of for the rest of her life. Then, April 15, 1874, was the opening of the first Impressionist art exhibition, although, again, the organizers didn't call themselves that. They were the Anonymous Society of Painters, Sculptors, Printmakers, etc. Their artwork was so controversial that they tried to keep their names at least somewhat out of the spotlight. But the name Impressionists followed this exhibition. Critic Louis Leroy wrote a scathing review, and he picked up the name from one of Monet's exhibited works titled Impression Sunrise. Most of the Impressionists did not start using that name themselves until a few years later. Some of them never, ever did. Yeah, some of them hated that name a whole lot. Morisot had 10 pieces in this exhibition, and she was the only woman whose art was included. But this really cemented her as one of the central artists in this movement, along with Claude Monet, Edgar Degas, Pierre-Auguste Renoir, Camille Pissarro, and Alfred Sisley. Although the exhibition was praised for its organization, it was generally panned by art critics and sometimes panned viciously. It was full of art that the French Academy would not have accepted for the Salon, which broke a lot of the formal conventions related to everything from painting technique to subject matter. Many of the painters themselves were also just viewed as degenerate radicals. And to cap off 1874, on December 22nd, Bert Morisot got married to Eugène Manet, who was the brother of Edouard Manet. She had known him since 1868. Her marriage certificate described her as having no profession. Sometimes people interpret that as a slight on her painting, but it was not really considered appropriate for a, an upper-middle-class woman to have a profession. Um, her husband, though, was listed as a man of property, uh, which cracks me up a little bit. Baird was 32. That was really pretty old for someone's first marriage, and she also seems to have been really pragmatic about it. 
She described herself as getting married, quote, without the least pomp, in a dress and a hat, like an old woman that I am, and without guests. They did have both a civil and a religious service. That was how it typically worked at this point. Mauricio had been raised Catholic, but she wasn't really observant anymore. But skipping the church wedding entirely would have really upset her family. Even though Bert's mother had been really eager for her to be married, uh, most of the family was somewhere on a spectrum between ambivalent and disapproving when it came to her choice of husband. Bert's brother had described him as intelligent but lazy, criticizing him for being in his 30s but still not seeming to know what he wanted to do with his life. Her mother had called him crazy and said that he had no common sense, and she had criticized his Republican politics during the Paris Commune. They were also both fairly anxious people. As an anxious person, I understand how this could be challenging to have two anxious people in the relationship. But Eugene, like Barrett and like his brother Edward, was an artist. He understood and supported and promoted Barrett's work, and he promoted her work rather than trying to build a professional career for himself. She continued to sign all of her work, Barrett Morisot, after getting married. And we're going to talk more about her life post-marriage after we pause for a sponsor break. The Impressionist movement in France made it somewhat more possible for women to become publicly known as artists. Women weren't admitted to the prestigious École des Beaux-Arts, but the Impressionists were not following a lot of the artistic rules and conventions that that school was teaching. It wasn't considered appropriate for women to do nude figure studies, but again, the Impressionists weren't really focused on figure studies anyway. In terms of subject matter, a lot of the Impressionists focused on landscapes and on the everyday lives of the French middle class, so women could paint or draw the world around them rather than needing a studio to set up formal portraits or still lifes to work from. It also wasn't considered appropriate for women to hire professional art models, since models were regarded almost as sex workers. But the Impressionists' focus on everyday life meant that women artists could depict their friends and their families instead. And Berthe Morisot's work fit right into this. Her favorite subjects included her friends and family and the places they lived and traveled. She portrayed her subjects in an intimate and tender way that was simultaneously almost sketchy with very loose brushstrokes, experimenting with light and color in a way that kind of pushed the boundaries. All of that said, though, the position of women in the movement was a little complicated. Morisot was a central figure in the Impressionist movement from the very, very beginning, but at first she was also the only woman Later, prominent women Impressionists include Mary Cassatt and Marie Bracquemont. But most of the well-known figures in the movement were and continue to be men. In general, women faced criticism for publicly showing and selling their art, but the hallmarks of Impressionism shield them from some of the criticism of the movement itself. In the late 19th century, women in France were generally viewed as inferior to men and less capable of rational thought. So Impressionist loose brushwork, fluidity, and focus on sensation rather than composition was more acceptable for a woman. After all, that was probably the best that she could do. But that was not the case for a man. 
For her own part, Morisso wrote this in her diary in 1890. Quote, I don't think there has ever been a man who treated a woman as an equal, and that's all I would have asked, for I know I'm worth as much as they are. Although Cornelie Morisseau didn't love the idea of her daughter marrying Eugène Manet, once the wedding was over, she got back to supporting Bert's artistic career. As Bert adjusted to being married, she stopped producing as many paintings of her sister Edma, and she painted her husband Eugène instead. They honeymooned in England in 1875. That same year, the Impressionists held an art auction, and although some of Morisot's pieces sold for respectable amounts, the auction itself was kind of a fiasco, with the auctioneer having to call the police because of unruly detractors who disrupted the bidding. In 1876, the Impressionists held their second exhibition. Critic Albert Wolfe described Morisot this way in his review of it, quote, There's also a woman in the group, as in most notorious gangs. She's called Berthe Morisot and is curious to note. In her case, a feminine grace is maintained amid the outpouring of a delirious mind. Eugène considered uh, challenging him to a duel over this, but did not. I'm glad he didn't, but also, what a jerk. On December 15, 1876, Cornelie Morisot died. Two years later, in 1878, Berthe Morisot gave birth to a daughter, Julie. Berthe was 37 at this point and had been trying to get pregnant since marrying Eugène. Her recovery from giving birth was quite difficult, but she really loved her daughter. And she had a wet nurse and other staff to take care of her, so she was still able to paint. Julie became her favorite model. She was in about one-third of Morisot's paintings after she was born. Morisot learned to paint very quickly, and her style became even sketchier because her young daughter just didn't stay still for very long. Since she was still recovering from giving birth, Morisot was unable to participate in the 1878 Impressionist exhibition. This is the only one that she didn't participate of the formal exhibitions that happened during these years. But that year, she did exchange several letters with Mary Cassatt, who first exhibited with the Impressionists in 1879. That year, after Morisot had started working again, Mary Cassatt wrote to her, quote, I am so pleased that you have been working a lot. You're going to make a brilliant return to the exhibition, and I assure you that I am really envious of your talent. Cassatt also proposed that they each paint one another's portraits, but that never happened, sadly. By 1881, more women had become associated with the Impressionist movement, and women in France were generally trying to get more exposure as artists. The Union of Women Painters and Sculptors was founded in 1881 to promote the work of women artists and to advocate for women to be admitted to the École des Beaux-Arts. Although Morisot was well-established as an artist and she resisted the constraints that were placed on women in French society, she didn't really participate in this movement for women's inclusion and recognition. In addition to the artwork that Berthe Morisot contributed to the Impressionist movement, she and her husband bought the work of other artists from the movement and also financially contributed to it. That included paying the rent to rent the space for the 1882 Impressionist exhibition. Berthe couldn't personally attend that year. They had been away from Paris and Julie had become ill, so Berthe had stayed with her. Uh, her husband chose which paintings for her to exhibit that year. Edouard Manet died on April 30th, 1883. 
He and Morisot had been influencing each other's work for about 15 years, and after his death, Morisot started to bring in more influences from the work of Pierre-Auguste Renoir. This included visiting his studio in 1886 and seeing his work as a draftsman. They discussed doing preparatory drawings in advance of painting, and this became a bigger part of Morisot's process. She would make sketches and studies ahead of time in something like red chalk, charcoal, or pastel, before then moving on to paint on canvas. In 1889, Morisot made multiple visits to the Exposition Universelle. We talked about that in our episode on Gustave Eiffel. That same year, she organized a campaign to buy Edouard Manet's painting Olympia for the nation of France. In 1890, she visited the École des Beaux-Arts to view a collection of Japanese prints that was there. This was something that Mary Cassatt had invited and encouraged her to do. At some point around that time, Morisot also traded some of her paintings for some Japanese prints. Uh, and for a while, she and Cassatt worked pretty closely together on their artwork. I feel like a whole thing about the interplay between Japanese artwork and the Impressionists is like a whole other subject. <laughs> for sure. That's outside the scope of this podcast, but I wanted to note it. Eugène Manet had gotten sick in 1886, and he never fully recovered. He died on April 13, 1892. Before his death, though, he had negotiated Morisot's first solo exhibition, which included 40 of her paintings along with work on paper. This exhibition was mostly, but not entirely, well-reviewed, and some of her pieces sold at good prices. Morisot said that Mary Cassatt never commented on this exhibition. It is not clear whether this was a cause or an effect, but their relationship seems to have become more contentious over time. Yeah, she was bothered by the fact that Mary Cassatt never commented on this exhibition. Um, Way later, after Bert Morisot had died, uh, one of the things that I read was that Mary Cassatt was giving some of her paintings to a museum, and the ones that were selected, she was like, ah, oh, Bert Morisot didn't like those. <laughs> they seem to have gotten into some kind of, like, either adversarial or frenemy kind of situation eventually that I wish I knew more detail about. Uh, Morisot really grieved over her husband's death. And after the exhibition was over, she and Julie moved into a smaller apartment. That was what was expected for a widow. On June 8th, 1893, Bert's sister Eve died. And then in 1895, Julie got the flu, and Bert took care of her, eventually getting sick herself. And that developed into pneumonia, and Bert Morisot died on March 2nd, 1895, at the age of 54. She was buried with the Manet brothers in the family plot and had a gravestone that reads, Berthe Morisot, widow of Eugène Manet. Like her marriage certificate, her death certificate said that she had no profession. After Morisot's death, Camille Pizarro wrote this to his son, quote, Still in Paris, because I want to attend the funeral of our old comrade Berthe Morisot, who died after an attack of influenza. You can hardly conceive how surprised we all were and how moved, too, by the disappearance of this distinguished woman who had such a splendid feminine talent and who brought honor to our Impressionist group, which is vanishing like all things. Poor Madame Morisot. The public hardly knows her. Bert's death left her daughter Julie an orphan at the age of 16. Morisot had named French symbolist poet Stéphane Mallarmé as Julie's guardian, Bert and Stefan had been friends for years. 
Julie was looked after by her mother's friends from the art world, particularly Renoir and Degas. Bert had taught Julie to paint as soon as she was old enough to start learning, although her work never really compared to her mother's. Julie also kept a diary, which she started when she was 14 and which she continued through 1899. This period includes the Dreyfus Affair, which reached its peak after Morisot's death. As we talked about in our recent two-parter, the affair really divided the Impressionists, with Renoir and Degas both being anti-Dreyfusards. So Julie's diary relates the anti-Semitic remarks of both Renoir and Degas without really criticizing them for it, and then also reflects her own anti-Semitic attitudes. Where Berthe Morisot might have fallen on this isn't really clear. Her circle of close friends and colleagues included Dreyfusards and anti-Dreyfusards. It really was like from Degas on the virulently anti-Semitic, anti-Dreyfusard side of the equation to Emile Zola on the other end. It's the whole spectrum. Uh, So I don't really know what her opinions would have been on that. During her lifetime, Berthe Morisot produced more than 860 paintings. The year after her death, Renoir, Degas, and Monet held a memorial show that featured 380 of her works. That is a lot of work. But although Julie and some of Morisot's other friends and relatives donated some pieces to museums, the vast majority of this work remained with private collectors. Many that were part of her memorial exhibition have not been publicly shown since then. Since Morisot's work wasn't really on public view very much after her death, her name became less remembered as one of the central figures of the Impressionist movement. Instead of being really well-known as such an important part of that movement, she instead became mostly known as Edouard Manet's model and muse. This doesn't just mean that Morisot's own artwork was largely forgotten about. It also means that there wasn't as much of an examination of how her work influenced the Impressionist movement as a whole, specifically the work of other artists like Degas, Manet, Monet, and Renoir, and vice versa. Like, I read multiple articles by art historians who were like, we understand all this work less because we don't know enough about Berthe Morisot. That all started to shift a little bit in 1905, when 13 of her paintings were shown in London at a post-Impressionist exhibition. Other exhibitions followed, but they've been relatively few and far between. In the 1990s, some of Morisot's descendants donated paintings to the Musée Marmottan Monet. Now, the Musée Marmottan Monet has the largest collection of Berthe Morisot's artwork in the world, That includes 25 oil paintings and 75 watercolors, along with pastels and drawings. So in more recent years, her work has become more visible and accessible. We will end with a quote from her daughter, Julie, who said, quote, Every time I see a beautiful landscape, I will think to myself, how well Mama would have painted that. I find that very sweet. Mm -hmm. Do you have very sweet listener mail? I do have listener mail. Uh, This is about something that came up in this episode. It's our two-parter on the Dreyfus Affair. I've gotten a couple of notes about this, uh, so I wanted to clarify. Uh, So this is from Michelle, who wrote an, uh, an email titled Alfred Dreyfus and Zionism. And she wrote, Dear Holly and Tracy, I thoroughly enjoyed the two-part episode on Alfred Dreyfus growing up. We learned that the Dreyfus Affair was the spark that led directly to the foundation of the State of Israel. 
a reporter in the crowd at the public shaming of Dreyfus, was to become known as the father of modern Zionism. Theodore Herzl would go on to be a national hero in Israel and have many streets named in his honor. Mount Herzl in Israel is a revered site which is home to his final resting place. Political Zionism is very different from traditional religious Zionism in that it is completely secular in nature. In fact, Herzl suggested Uganda as a new home for the Jews since the Ottoman Empire at that time was not such a friend to the Jewish people. As political Zionism spread through Europe, it was exported to America through publications and strengthened with the immigration of many Jewish people fleeing violence and an increasing number of anti-Jewish laws. When the British took over the land of Israel, there had been a growing pressure from Jewish communities worldwide to form a Jewish state in the Jewish indigenous homeland. A white paper in the British Parliament was issued declaring just such an intention in 1939, known as the Balfour Declaration. The Zionism movement of Europe sparked several waves of immigration over the century, resulting in a boom in the highly secular population in Israel. This has greatly influenced the country to this day. I highly suggest Theodore Herzl as a follow-up to the Dreyfus episodes. Thank you for the great work that you do. Your podcast is continually on my recommendations list. Keep up the good work, Michelle. Um, Michelle then followed with some notes about how to pronounce things in Hebrew. And I will just note that when we work on pronunciations for the show, uh, I'm always finding native speakers that I can hear say things because when people kind of type out notes about how to pronounce things, that often does not translate to successfully figuring out how to say it. No. In any way. (laughs) Um, Whenever somebody tells me that something rhymes with Sarah, I think about how my grandmother said that as Sarah, which uh, totally changes how you would say that word. So anyway, uh, we've gotten several notes about, uh, about Herzl and Zionism and this idea that the Dreyfus Affair directly led to this. And that is almost ubiquitous in popular writing about him. But there's actually some controversy about whether the Dreyfus Affair directly led to his uh, Zionism because he had witnessed and experienced anti-Semitism in Vienna, where he was from, for his whole life before covering the Dreyfus Affair. His diaries at the time don't really mention it, and his contemporaries described his Zionism as really stemming from his upbringing in Vienna, uh, including people who were writing about his his life uh, after he died in 1904. So his own writing about the process of writing The Jewish State, which became like a foundational text within the movement, didn't really mention Dreyfus at all until a lot later. His first mentions that directly connected Dreyfus to his Zionism were in a publication that he was writing for U.S. audiences where there was huge support for Dreyfus overall. So there's some suggestion that He was kind of bringing in the Dreyfus name to try to build support for it, rather than that being like that specifically the thing that led him to focus on Zionism. Um, Most of the worst parts of the Dreyfus affair actually played out after he published The Jewish State, which was, again, that that document that he wrote about it. Um, So that is just a little note on that for the folks that have uh, sent that in or for folks that, that were interested in that whole idea. Um, if you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. And we're all over social media at Mist in History. So that's where you'll find our Facebook and Twitter and Pinterest and Instagram. You can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app. 
or anywhere else that you get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.